This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. To me, pH is even more critical than it was as a brewer uh, to make sure we're getting the best possible whiskey out of it. This week on the show, we explore some of the similarities and differences between brewing and distilling. And we've got just the right guy for the job. He's done plenty of both, as well as malting for both purposes. I'm Todd Leopold. I'm the head distiller and head maltster at Leopold Brothers here in Denver, Colorado. Todd, you got started as a brewer, then became a distiller and maltster. If you had to pick just one of those professions, which one would it be? Oh, distilling, I think. I I, I thought that I found my... uh, my career path with brewing and then I got my hands on a pot still and that, that was kind of the end of that. It's just, you know, it's another step without even getting into, you know, maturation and things like that. When we're talking about spirits, um, it's just, you know, it's a plus one and the idea of making, you know, with age spirits in particular, you know, with beer, you kind of know where you are you know, at least a, you know, a week or so in a fermentation or a bit longer when you're making lagers. But when you're making spirits, whiskey in particular that we do here, you're trying to hit a, hit a target on a tree that's 10 years out. And so it's very, very, (laughs) yeah, it's very, very gratifying when you hit it, when you can, you know, understand enough to manipulate and target certain esters that you're looking for, you know, the same way you did with, with, with brewing. But it can the the chemistry can be be a bit more complex um, when when you're talking about handling distillation. So that that's really it for me. Uh, I love them all, though. Of course, I, I don't miss uh, grain out <laughs> in the middle of the summer. <laughs> um, we we uh, distill grain on, which means hammer milling and and the entire grain batch. All the milled grain goes into the fermenters, goes into the stills, and so grain outs ten minutes with a pump as opposed to 
you know, getting out every last bit out of a louder ton. I don't miss that part. And uh, it's not aseptic. So the, 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 you know, that's, that's the part that I've really embraced. And it's, uh, it's something that so many brewers understand now because of sour, uh, sour beer production. But, um, you know, not, not having to have, you know, pails of sanitizer all over the place is that you kind of feel a bit like you're cheating. But in yeah, distillation, when you're, yeah, when you're trying to make a, um, a, a whiskey, in my opinion, you should try and encourage lactobacillus and, and the things that you're trying to avoid at all costs when you're making a lager beer. Um, you're, you're doing the exact opposite. So that, that, that's... Uh, that's an even added bonus to it. So it's fun having some, you know, the crew down from new Belgium um, or, or, or cricket stave that, that obviously specialize in these kinds of beers. And, you know, I kind of feel like I, I'm cheating in the sense that if I see something that I don't like, uh, you know, I can put it in the still, <laughs> they don't have that luxury. <laughs> and as you yeah. know, nothing survives phase change. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that makes it a quite a bit easier. Okay, well, among other things, today we'll be talking about some of the differences between brewing and distilling. Let's start with an area that you should be well-equipped to discuss. Talk about malting for beer versus spirits. The distillers just get all the thin kernels brewers don't want, right? If you're making, yeah, if you're making distillers malt, absolutely. You basically want... Um, you know, the, the garbage leftover QC reject barley. I mean, it needs to be clean and it needs to be, you know, a Dawn free and that kind of thing. But for the most part, uh, we're out there trying to pick the highest protein that we can get our hands on because of course, protein is the building blocks for the enzyme. So when you're making distillers malt, you're basically making an enzyme bomb. You, you, you can't really chase after flavor too much. Because when you get into that kiln, you got to keep below the the temperatures that would denature in a mash tun is a very simple way to think of it, right? So you're using much cooler temperatures. The flavors are very much like raw barley. Um, and we, we make an Irish-style whiskey. And for those who don't know, uh, traditional Irish, Irish whiskey will have, you know, 50% or so raw barley in it. Distiller's malt, the flavor is very, very similar. Uh, and when you're making a distiller's malt, there's not much else you need to worry about. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, beta-glucans or anything like that, because for the most part, you're adding corn or rye to it or, or wheat. Uh, so shelf stability isn't an issue. So making distiller's malt is, uh, I'd like to say, it's a very, very wide road to drive on. There's not much you can do outside of... Uh, denaturing those enzymes that you need to worry about. You germinate longer on the floor. You're making sure you're creating, synthesizing as, me as many enzymes as you possibly can. And for us, we use it in our vodka. We also use it in our various whiskeys at a 20% mark, which is really what you saw in the 1800s before uh, distillers started having really ready access to enzymes out of a jug, basically. Um, and it, it's uh, it's the flavor profile is very similar to to that raw barley. So that's really the biggest difference. Now, if we're talking about making whiskey uh, malt whiskey, now you have a completely open um, open path because again, we don't have to worry about beta glucans and some other compounds like that as much as you would. Um, when, when we're talking about making something for beer, where you need to filter it, where you need it to be shelf stable, 
for us, we make what, what we call whiskey malt, and it's kind of a you know some a step between Vienna and, and Munich malt, where we're re- uh, recirculating hot air in the kiln. Uh, to create some sugars so that when you apply a bit more heat, when you warm up that kiln to finish it off at 220 degrees, you're creating all those beautiful bready notes. And to me, Vienna t- tastes very nutty. Um, or, or for me, I guess specifically, it tastes like Oktoberfest beer. <laughs> um, but this is a complete departure from where malting was uh, used for distilling for the last hundred years, particularly in Scotland. They've all just been making pale malt, essentially. And for an American brewer, uh, that that sounds a bit strange if you think about wanting to make a whiskey. Uh you're not necessarily just going to look at pale malt and that's it because we know how many wonderful flavors you can get from more highly kiln malts where diastatic power isn't as much of an issue, right? So self-conversion is north of 70. So the DP for the whiskey, for the malts that I use to make whiskey, uh, it's usually somewhere between 80 and 90. And not having to worry about that higher diastatic power that you do in distiller's malt really opens up what you can do in the kiln. You can have quite a bit more fun. You can get higher colors, which, of course, correlates to the flavor that you get. And that's what we're really kind of focusing on, having our own malt house, because it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go to the trouble of of building a a floor malting facility and just make regular old pale malt for your whiskey. So we're trying to take advantage of that as much as possible and have another lever to pull to make a whiskey that's unique that you can't really find anywhere else. You hit right on right away on the importance of, of DP. And I was going to ask, um, you know, I can't remember what year we began to see this distinction called out within AMBA between targets for craft malt and targets for adjunct brewers, but it wasn't that long ago. Uh, one of the obvious distinctions that came out of that uh, is this larger differential in diastatic power. So uh, you just mentioned these levers that you need to, to pull. What What are all the different levers you need to pull in the malt house to to hit that high dp for stiller's malt and then what do you do differently when you want to get the a lower dp target for for a craft brewer's malt so the high diastatic power that that's really about first of all starting with a higher protein uh barley. Um, We're here in Colorado and with all the wonderful work that the Coors family has done over so many decades, I'm kind of cheating, right? So we already have the farmers uh, that are used to making uh, world-class malting barley. But they're probably used to making barley that's got a lot less protein than you want, right? Well, yes, absolutely. So when we're talking about um, uh, malting for distiller's malt, uh, absolutely. So for the most part, we're seeing uh, protein content of around 10 percent and that's no in my opinion not anywhere near what you're looking for you're looking at 14 plus which is real really uh basically keeps you from winding up uh in a coors brewery uh in their malt house at that high of a protein content uh but the farmers around here have learned over time that we're the place to go <laughs> um, <laughs> if they have something that has two you know if everything else checks out for quality control except for protein they know to give us a call and and if we have the time and the capacity, um, we're, we're going to drop that in our silo and uh, steep in. So the, you know, the, the steeping, you're looking to go to, a, in, in my opinion, a slightly higher moisture content. Um, that, that just kind of facilitates the germination process a bit. We, we were a little bit warmer on the floor at the end. 
We're allowing it to sit on the floor really for about an extra 20 hours over what we would do for a Pilsner or a pale malt. And, you know, that germination, obviously, we're, we're breaking compounds down, we're making more of those enzymes. Uh, but the most important part is when you get into that kiln. So for the most part, and the, and the reason, you know, I always wondered before I got into this, why distiller's malt always tended to be so expensive. Uh, it's in that kiln for much longer because basically you're, you're using for the free drying where you're trying to get the bulk of that moisture content out. You're really using very low temperatures around 120 degrees. And at that low of a temperature, you had to go the, slow. The, yeah, exactly. So it's going to take quite a bit longer. You're drying with air rather than heat. And the reason you're doing that is obviously to preserve enzymes as much as you possibly can. But the free drying phase, instead of taking 24 hours, will take about 36 hours. So, you know, that's quite a bit longer. That's a lot, uh, you know, bigger deal if you're a larger malt house and you're looking for throughput in that kiln. So that's why it winds up being a bit more uh, expensive is the throughput is is not quite as good. Um, did you have to build a, a, a make any modifications or you know did you have to have any special considerations during your kiln design, f- knowing that you were going to need to do that? No, not for that. The the big biggest you, modification. You just, I'm gonna. It's just gonna eat up more capacity. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's okay. We're we're in a unique position in that you know we're using the malt on site as well, so we don't quite have the same production constraints that a standalone malt house would. Sure. Um, so so we're tying our malting into the production needs of the distillery as well, and that kind of e- eases up a bit, and and we built a bit more than we needed in terms of capacity to make sure that, you know, as production warranted and we need more distillers malt to, to you know, so for instance, we're about to expand our uh, rye whiskey production. And that means we're going to have to make a bit more of that distillers malt in the coming year. And we just needed to make sure that the uh, production uh, was designed around having that flexible capacity. So it does make things a bit wonky um, because it's on the floor longer and, it, and it's in the kiln longer. So it, it can make it a bit uh, fussy in terms of making sure that everybody's here on time, <laughs> on the right days for the right process to turn the malts because of course we're flooring it, which means rakes and uh, shovels and making sure that that malt is turned and that we're, we don't wind up having all of the root let's grow together and turn it into a big giant carpet. You, you don't want that <laughs> at, at all costs. At that point, you really, it's very, very difficult to move uh, an entire uh, 5,000 square foot floor filled with carpet, basically. <laughs> Sounds like you might've had to do that before. Uh, we, we've had, <laughs> yes, we have. We, we've, you know, it's like, every, it's like every other production facility where you have equipment failures and we had the, a cooling unit, but this was when we had a smaller malt floor at the time. Um, went out overnight and so we, we showed up and the room was sitting at 70 degrees and of course what's that going to do to the malt it's going to accelerate the growth exactly it, it, yeah so um, you know the, the nice part on that side as long as you can kind of uh, you know get the stuff moving if you're using that malt in-house uh, that's not as big of an issue uh, but you, you absolutely can't tolerate something like that if you're making it for a fellow brewer that that doesn't quite fly but it's nice having a <laughs> having a bit of a safe, safety stop if you see something that you don't like you turn it into whiskey right yeah yeah and at least your batch size is small and that you, you weren't 
in a germ box the size of what they have at course that would yes, have been a problem. No, exactly the multiple yeah. multiple boxes that they have at course and yeah. it's always fun having them over and they're they're just so they've been so wonderful to us but it's a marvel to them because of course they're asking so many questions about you know how we do x y and z how do you move it and for them it's a vertical malt house where you start at the top and slowly work your way down in floors and gravity is your friend and unlike the cooling fan uh, gravity doesn't break, <laughs> so you can w- wind up having a greatly simplified process. Okay, well, let's talk more about malt flavor. Um, is there any flavor-focused divergence in your process when you're making brewer's malt versus distiller's malt? What are, what are you focused on in terms of flavor? On the flavor side, when we're talking about making something for a, for a brewer, and I guess when you when you say distiller's malt, you're also referring to the whiskey malt that we're using to make malt whiskey. Yeah, I guess it's really three different buckets, right? It is. So distiller's yeah. distiller's malt that that's about enzymes and flavor really doesn't come into it for the most part. Uh, you you have varietal issues. You have um, you know where where you can get some some different flavor components by using different varieties of barley. But for the for the most part, by and large, when you're uh, using distiller's malt, the bulk of your flavor from your grain, you're looking to get it from uh, you're looking to get it from your rye or your corn or your wheat, depending on what kind of whiskey you're making or oats or you know everybody's using everything from spelt to millet these days. Um, but uh, the the on the brewer's side of things, we're, we're looking to make it a, a bit more traditional malt. And, and when I say traditional, uh, I'm talking about the, the really before the 1970s and 1980s, where there was kind of a push towards focusing on color and focusing on diastatic power, where you were moving, you know, somewhere between 140 and 170 were pretty common diastatic uh, powers that you see, even if you weren't looking to add adjuncts. And what I've noticed over the years, and of course, this is going back to, you know, Siebel, I left, uh, graduated from Siebel in 1996, which meant a lot of the papers that we had were from the, you know, 70s and 80s. The fine chords difference has really kind of changed. The fine course difference, the, the acceptability was really around uh, 1.5 to 2 is what you would see as, as acceptable. And boy, has that changed in the last few years. Uh, and this all correlates to flavor, obviously. So in other words, to, to me, some of these malts that are designed for, you know, the arrival of the, of the craft brewer and the single infusion or brewers that don't have steam jackets, uh, convertibility in that single temperature infusion becomes much more important where the maltster is needing to do a lot more of that work. The, the result of that means that they're on the floor a bit longer, they're germinating a bit longer, they're making sure the beta-glucans are broken down, and there's a tendency to kind of let go ease up on the kiln temperatures a bit so that you do have that higher diastatic power. To me, we saw a kind of a nice flavor opportunity to have a bit bit of uh, creativity in the process by saying, well, do we really need that much in the way of enzymes? And in my career, the, the, the thing to do was to use some type of carafoam, you know, a dextrinized malt where you were having trouble hitting that final terminal gravity and getting it up a little bit higher because when you were mashing in, you know, by the time you had a chance to move your temperature up, I did a step infusion. We did have steam door mash done. 
you know, by the time we got all of the mash in, you're flooding the, the mash with so many enzymes. It's very hard to hit that higher terminal gravity on a repeated basis, or at least that was my experience. And so, so many brewers I know would correct for that by adding the dextrinized malt into the process. And I thought, well, you know, why not shoot a bat, uh, uh, to where things were, you know, back in the day where ales were much more common and that diastatic power was around 80. When you do that, it, it kind of affects all the choices that you can make in the malting process when you're chasing after that flavor. And of course, the biggest one is the temperature that you're using. And it's also the temperature that you're using with the moisture levels a, a, a bit higher. So you could get more, more of your mired reactions and, and more of those deep flavors that I'm looking for, um, not just when I'm making beer, but also when I'm making whiskey. And that's changed over, over the last 20 or, or 30 years. And I think, I think maltsters and brewers are starting to look and say, do I really need 140 DP? And, and my answer to that question, if you're, if you're a malt, in my opinion, no. And so, you know, once you take that into account, really, there's not a whole lot of difference between the way that I look at flavors between making a, a malt for a, a distillery to make a malt whiskey or to, to make a base malt that a brewer can use, uh, you know, to make anything from a pale ale to, to a pilsner. So it affects the way that, that we're looking at all of the steps of the process with an eye towards flavor instead of an eye towards color diastatic power and, and the big one i've learned from talking with brewers is everybody seems to be scared to death of beta glucans um but but you know for the for the most part you know the the beta glucans are we leave it on the floor long enough for so it's usually somewhere between 100 and 140 which is you know com completely reasonable and you're not going to have any processing issues at all but at the same time, you know, our, our fine course difference might be a, a bit higher. We're still not going all the way up to two. I think that that might be a bit confusing for some brewers to deal with these days outside of places like uh, uh, Bierstadt Lagerhouse that does a decoction mass still. Um, but when, when you're focusing on flavor and you don't have to worry about that higher diastatic power, you can really be very creative in the kiln. Cool. Um, you know, I, bl I believe you're exclusively floor malting, right? So Correct. What, what does floor malting do for you that can't be achieved in pneumatic malting? Well, for one thing, it's fun. Um, it's an, it's an awful lot of fun getting, you know, the, the work that goes into it and getting your hands in it. Um, and you're v very intimate with what's happening on the floor. From a technical perspective, to me, the easiest answer is twofold. One, um, you know, your salad and boxes will have your, your stainless steel grating airflow is going through. When we're talking about floor malting, uh, you're, you're generating that carbon dioxide, and it really doesn't have a whole lot of, you know, it doesn't have much in the, of a way to go anywhere uh, outside of when you're raking. And there's really only a handful of, of places that are completely turning it over. Some of the places like Springbank or Balvenie will use what kind of looks like a modified uh, low RPM snowblower where you're trying to turn that malt and that will help release some of the carbon dioxide. But the, but the biggest thing is that relatively speaking, it's a, it's a bit more uneven. So in other words, when we're talking about a salad in box or drum malting, you're really trying to make it so that every single kernel gets the exact same 
treatment, whether we're talking air, uh, whether we're talking carbon dioxide removal, or whether we're talking about temperature, and, and you're trying to make it as uniform as possible, the, the beauty of floor malt, in my opinion, is no matter how thin that bed is, even if it's three inches deep, the temperature of the malt that's on the top is going to be a bit cooler than the temperature of the malt on the bottom. And as long as you take care of it and you make sure that you're raking it and, and keeping it moving, these temperature differences are very, very slight. So in other words, you know, you, you, if you put it in a friability meter, you're still going to get acceptable modification of all of them. So it's, it's not a wild difference, but when you have a bit of a chemical difference between those layers of malt on the floor, when you apply heat to it, you're going to get a depth of flavor. And that's kind of what you, you tend to run into when people talk about, you know, floor malted Maris Otter and, and things like that. The, the depth of flavor is a little bit better. And to me, in my opinion, it, it has a bit to do with the unevenness of the process relative to modern pneumatic malting. Coming up. When a distiller says, well, I'm letting it sit for 80 hours or 90 hours, what they're communicating is, is that that lactobacillus is starting to go to work. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer, Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they have created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, the global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. A couple of our veteran podcast guests will be putting on a webinar on the topic of standardized data collection with ASBC sampling plan. That's going to be on March 26th. There's a Master Brewers webinar on April 13th called To Congress or Not to Congress, a topic you'll find familiar from our 200th episode. District St. Louis meets April 15th. 
District New England zooms on April 16th. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course begins April 21st. The Great District Northwest covers all things canning for their spring meeting by Zoom on May 21st. And the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. There's finally a beer industry conference you can put on your calendar that might actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew. Now back to the show. Kind of got into this a little bit, but let's let's take things beyond the malt house and, and talk more about mashing. Talk about the difference of the difference between mashing for for body versus yield. When you're talking about mashing for distillation, you're trying to avoid dextrinization at all costs, and you're when you create those dextrins, the mouthfeel in a beer, that's pointless when you're talking about distillation because, of course. Uh, those dextrins aren't going to pass through into the distillation process. You're losing alcoholic yield. So if you talk about making a, just your standard full beer and it's at, let's make the math easy and round it to 12 Play-Doh. And, and if you're stopping out at four Play-Doh at the end of it, you're, you're losing a quarter of the, your yield out of that malted barley. If we're talking about making malt whiskey. Uh, so you want to avoid doing that as, as much as possible and try and uh, make sure that that conversion is as simple as possible, which to me just means a single temperature infusion. There's no point to doing any kind of step infusion. There's no point, in my opinion, to decoction because, you know, by and large, most of us are using hammer mills um, when we're talking about producing a rye whiskey or a bourbon. If you're making malt whiskey, yeah, you can, you can do either if you want. By and large, people are using roller mills on that um, and separating the grains away from the solids. So that's another uh, potential for loss of yield. So when we're talking about using a louder ton in a brewery or distillery, you have to worry about yield. And and most louder tons, especially at a smaller shop, you'll get maybe 80, 85% if you're you're lucky. Uh, that, That doesn't translate very well when we're talking about making whiskey you want to try and avoid that so it's a reason that we hammer mill everything we don't have to crawl inside of a louder ton which is an added bonus but we don't have that loss of 20 percent of your grain simply by milling and distilling grain on so it's one of the reasons that the larger distillers particularly in america use that process it really helps your efficiency quite a bit and it's you're removing a step from the process and you're distilling on the grain and when you distill on the grain 
you're bringing all of those uh, solids up to a boil, and that includes your yeast, of course. That's going to contribute an oiliness, palate fullness to the to the final whiskey that you're looking for. On the brewing side, of course, you're trying to make sure, you know, to me anyways, the, the mark of a really good brewer is hitting that terminal gravity every time. So you're trying to make it so that you're mashing in, in a way that you are presenting the same uh same different kinds of sugars to the yeast as possible every time as much repeatability as you can so you'll start with that 12.5 hit that four percent or three and a half or whatever it is you're looking for depending on the beer obviously for your terminal gravity so it's one of those things uh, again where i feel like i'm cheating mashing and distillation is pretty doggone easy you want to make sure that that you hit that 144 degrees as as often as possible and then of course we're one of the rare shops that mashes naturally by and large if i had to guess probably oh 80 percent of the distilleries in, in america will add enzymes to it and the, the reason they do that is yield is one thing the other reason they do that is for processability so they'll add uh, beta glucanase for instance to rye or, or proteinase when we're talking about wheat to make it so that it's not going to foam as much in the fermenters foaming is a much more uh, uh, of an issue for most distillers because they like to ferment hot or what I, what I consider to be hot, um, which means in the, you know, high eighties, nineties. And when you're fermenting that fast and you're generating that much CO2 and going from that, uh, in, in many cases, most of the brewers, or excuse me, most of the distillers are around 15 Play-Doh. They're going to want to drive that all the way down to zero in terms of, of converting all of their starches and, and the rest of their components. You're fermenting a lot more sugar, obviously, and you're doing that in 72 hours. So 72 hours is pretty much the standard that distillers look at for complete fermentation. And obviously, if you're uh, consuming 15% sugar in 72 hours, that's an awful lot of carbon dioxide you're generating which is why foaming is it can be quite a bit of an issue so when you say you're you're um you're you're mashing naturally i assume you must have to take on some additional strategy to really make sure you're providing an optimal environment for the enzymes are you doing things like uh optimizing your ph and you know any anything else to to really give those enzymes the the you know a fighting chance Yes, and that that's where the the sour mashing process that that um, people like to talk about. We use the sour mash process for all but one of our whiskeys. We actually use it for our vodka. Um, we're 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 trying to make sure uh, that we're getting that most active possible pH, which to me is five four. That's what I like to mash at. Uh, I'm sure you can get arguments for five five as well. Um, but what we're trying to do is make sure that we're getting the, the acidification into that mash. It's kind of the same process you get to make German lagers, right? With the German purity law, having to make your biological acidification, taking that first wort, holding to it 122 degrees, letting the lactobacillus that's inside that first wort convert that in, into lactic acid. To me, it, it, it I'm almost, I have zero evidence of this, by the way, but um, <laughs> I, I think that German brewers showed up in Kentucky and, you know, you're looking at, you know, when you're mashing in that your, uh, 
when you're adding all of those grains together in that mash tun with your water, obviously your pH is going to push up quite a bit higher, almost up to six. And I can just see a German brewer uh, freshly arrived from Germany pointing over to the pot still and saying, well, you just boiled that. And the, the finishing pH for most uh, Kentucky bourbons are usually in the threes. So it's, it's a bit lower than you get in beer. You just boiled it. That that's a, has a pH in the three. Why don't we take some of that and add it into the mash tun and sour it? So that's that process. It also has the added uh, benefit of you just boiled all the yeast up, all the calcium, all the magnesium, all the zinc. You're going to reintroduce that into the mash tun, uh, which is going to make for a much happier fermentation. But yeah, pH is absolutely critical, um, not only to the process when we're talking about, and this is where... <laughs> Uh, the, the added dimension of distillation comes in. Brewers know they have to keep an eye on pH when we're talking about making the enzymes happy and making the yeast happy. Distillers have the added uh, the added issue of you want that pH a bit lower because what that does is it makes it so that esters and other compounds are more volatile in that pot still during distillation. So pH affects what winds up being, being vaporized and winds up in your final whiskey. So to, so to me, pH is even more critical than it was as a brewer uh, to make sure we're getting the best possible whiskey out of it. Cool. Okay, um, you started to get into some of the differences um, with fermentation temperature. Fermentation obviously looks pretty different from brewing to distilling. Talk more about that, that difference in temperature and, and some, some of the associated outcomes. Well, that, that's one of the things where we're a very unusual shop. So what the strategy for most of the larger distillers and the smaller ones in America, when we're talking about whiskey production, what they're doing is, is using much higher temperatures, first of all, to make sure that their throughput is good so that they're done in 72 hours. They're using a, a much higher player Play-Doh um, mash. And, and as you know, when we're talking about making Doppelbox and other higher gravity beers, the higher you go, the more you stress the yeast out. You compound that issue with those higher temperatures, these distillers are intentionally stressing the yeast out to produce esters. So that's why they do that. So what they're doing, in, in, in my opinion, uh, it can lead to some negative outcomes. And one of the negative outcomes is the big ester is ethyl acetate. So they're producing all of these long chain esters that they're trying to get fruity notes into their distillate that will carry over into the whiskey, but they're also getting an awful lot of ethyl acetate. And if you've ever wondered why some of your lower end or bottom shelf bourbons that are out there, they're all made with the same process, basically. Uh, the, the difference is, is that those lower end bourbons have only been in a barrel for two years and it doesn't really have time to, to hide that sensation of heat or burning or, or whatever uh, adjective you'd like to use. Uh, that's why those taste hot. But if you let that sit in a barrel for 8, 10, 12 years, you're pulling out so many wood sugars and those other conversions that occur inside that barrel that, that you're softening that, that perception of that heat. But it's still very much something that's a kind of a hallmark of, of American whiskey where it's different from scotch and some of the other producers in that they're using much warmer temperatures. They're stressing that yeast out intentionally. And the distillation process, w which would be too cumbersome to explain here in one quick um, session, but there are no cuts in American bourbon production. 
So all of those flavors are, are going to carry over into the distillate and wind up in the barrel. Whereas in Scotland, you'll make what's called your head, heart, and tail cut. And your head cut is where a lot, some of that ethyl acetate is actually going to be removed from the process. And the Scottish distillers will just take the heart. That middle cut will go down into the barrel. So that's kind of how they're counteracting using those temperatures. It's usually a bit lower in Scotland, but they're trying to pull out some of that ethyl acetate, trace amounts of methanol, higher alcohols, all the things that, that brewers know they're trying to avoid when they're making a, a barley wine or a doppelbach, right? So that's the intention behind that. The, the problem in my mind, in addition to the ethyl acetate uh, production that you're going to wind up getting those esters are very long chain and complex and don't have a tendency to to come over in the still a lot of it stays behind in the pot simply because um they're not volatile enough it's too difficult to boil and get all of them out of out of solution so what we do here at our place is we ferment very cold uh so we're, we're pitching usually at 60 or 62 degrees we're still able to get our complete fermentation done in 72 hours but because we're using these cooler temperatures, we're not generating compounds that we need to try and eliminate or hide later on in the process. Has the added benefit as I'm uh, with, with the rye, um, when you're processing the rye and we're leaving those beta glucans in, foaming is an issue in the fermenters as well as the stills. When you're fermenting at that 60 degree, that carbon dioxide is evolving a little bit more slowly. So the, the 72 hour fermentation that we get is much more even. Whereas when you're fermenting in the 90s, you know, you'll, you'll get a 10% Play-Doh drop really or 10 points uh, of Play-Doh in your first 24 hours. The first 24 hours is pretty crazy in a uh, distillation fermentation. Um, but really the biggest difference between the two is they tend to use those warmer temperatures. And the, and the thing that I found most fascinating when I first got into distillation most of the distilleries, particularly in Scotland, you know, I started my career in distillation in 2001, were using one of two strains. They were using the M strain or the MX strain, which are both POF positive uh, strains. But the bulk of the character that they're getting in their whiskey, yes, the shape of stills has, has an effect on it. But the biggest one, and this is something that's not talked about very frequently, is we're not dealing with an aseptic solution. So we've got lactobacillus that is uh, active the instant that that yeast goes dormant, right? So the the way that the distillers kind of like to communicate that to, to the public, if you're really serious about whiskey, is how many hours are, is your fermentation? Because for the most part, 72 hours, you're done consuming all of those sugars. And when a distiller says, well, I'm letting it sit for 80 hours or 90 hours, what they're communicating is, is that that lactobacillus is starting to go to work. And the lactobacillus for a brewer, you're trying to get, you know, when you're making a sour beer, obviously you're trying to get, trying to avoid butyric acid formation. You're trying to avoid acetic acid uh, formation, but you're trying to get that pH down and that tartness into your beer. For a distiller, the reason you're doing that is organic acids, when you distill an organic acid in, in a still and it winds up in that alcohol solution, the whiskey barrel, over time, oxygen will react with those organic acids to create esters. So when you're a distiller, you're not just trying to create esters using your yeast during fermentation. Uh, 
you're also trying, or at least I am anyways, <laughs> trying to let the lactic acid bacteria to go to work so that you'll get esterification in that barrel. And that's really how you start to get a house note and a character into your whiskey. So for us, our primary fermentation is 72 hours. We're in open wooden fermenters. Our fermenters are up against open windows. We have a nice garden that's outside that we open up and the building is designed to draw air outside out of that garden across the wooden fermenters and up out a top vent. So it's very similar to what you would get with a lambic distillery or some of the, you know, uh, modern uh, sour beer producers. But the difference is, is that we're adding uh, two or three fresh yeast strains to it to completely consume all the sugars. And then we're going to let it sit for 48 hours to let the wild yeast and bacteria that's in the fermenters, that's in the air, and that also obviously came in with the raw materials to consume things that the yeast can't. So we get organic acids and more complex whiskey over time. That's pretty cool. Now, you just said you're using two or three different strains, so you're pitching a mixed culture uh, each time. Yes. Tell us more about that mixed culture. Is uh, is the same every time? Do you try different different strains all the time? Like, wh- How do you approach that? The thing that we always do is we always add one distiller strain, and that's to make sure that we're muscling through all the sugars and, and we get the yield that we're looking for. Right. Distiller strains tend to be a little, little bit on the boring side, in my opinion. So that's where you know being a brewer and having work with so many different yeast strains kind of comes in handy. So the way that we have our, our mashing set up, so we have a single mash ton that's about a 40-barrel mash ton. We have piping that allows it to direct it up to three different fermenters. So I can either add uh, three uh, three yeast strains in one single fermenter, or three different ones if I'm worried about you know any kind of killer yeast strains or, or inhibiting the the behavior that I'm looking for out of the yeast strains. So everything from uh, kvike uh, to you know uh, something that p- people would look for in a in one of your IPAs or something like that. I'm looking for peppery notes where I'm looking for esters, where I'm looking for tropical notes. It depends on what it is I'm, I'm trying to get into that whiskey. And we're always experimenting with, with different yeast strains and, and having as much fun with that as possible. But, you know, some strains that are absolutely spectacular for, for brewing and can get wonderful results can kind of fall flat sometimes when, when we're talking about distillation, uh, simply because you have to take into account that that you're going to be putting into a charred barrel. You're going to let it sit for 10 years. Some of these flavors are going to work. Some of them simply aren't going to be big enough. So you can get some wonderful, like a cool yeast, for instance, you know, it has some really subtle esters that I really like. It's very, it can be very difficult to kind of tease that out into a final whiskey though. So it, it takes a bit of experimentation and, you know, you, you run into the same thing with the, with the malt. There's a lot of distillers that are using, you know, some of your drum malt, some of your chocolate or black patent malts. If you use too heavy a hand with that, it can, you get so much in the way of tannin pulled over. It can, you know, you sip on a glass of whiskey and it can taste like somebody threw a coffee bean in there. It's so astringent. So you really have to keep an eye on your creativity and not get too uh, reckless, I guess. Now, I, I imagine um, I imagine there's no repitching here because it's such a difficult environment for the yeast. Correct me if I'm wrong about that. And since you're not brewing on site, I imagine you're having to purchase pretty large quantities of yeast to, to for these fermentations. 
Yes, uh, repitching is is pretty much impossible when we're talking about grain in, right. um, because what's going to wind up happening is you get a couple inches of basically your your when we're talking about malt, the you know the husks are going to kind of float to the top and get pushed up by the carbon dioxide. So it's really kind of hiding the yeast. It's it's pretty much impossible to do that. You could get away with it certainly um, if you're if you're making a malt whiskey where you're loudering the the solution, then you could do the same. You know, could do a yeast slide the same way you would, uh, you know, making hefeweizen or something like that. But repitching is v- very difficult. So yes, we are purchasing quite a bit of the dried yeast. But what we'll also do is we'll get liquid cultures that will step up on site. And, and again, this is one of those things that's not as important to get these things exactly perfect. Do you have a, have you developed a network of, of brewers that'll give you their, 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 the yeast on their last, uh, last cycle before they throw it down the drain? <laughs> that would probably be a, a much wiser way to do it. But what we go direct out of, uh, out, out of yeast labs to get what it is that we're looking for. And we just have the same type of yeast brink that you would see in, inside of a brewery. But again, the constraints are much looser. All I'm trying to do, I don't have to get the pitching weight, pitching rate exactly perfect the way that you do in beer where you're worried about that shell stability uh, above all else. For us, we're trying to look to get as many interesting flavors as you can. And at our scale, smaller distillers, for the most part, (laughs) you can try and be as consistent as you can when we're talking about mashing and fermentation and distillation. But then Mother Nature comes in when we're talking about maturation and can, you know, change all of that work almost instantaneously based on having a very, very hot summer, Um, you know, and when we're talking about mashing and fermentation here, because we are are fermenting in open fermenters, the temperature in the air changes from summer to winter. That's going to change the way that that fermentation behaves, and it's going to make it so that the whiskey is a little bit different. The way most of the, the smaller distillers get around that, or the way we did it, we used to do uh, barrel numbers for every one of the bottlings that we did and try and train our customers over time to expect that these things aren't going to be exactly identical. And of course, the larger distillers get around it the same way the large brewers do uh, blending. <laughs> they basically blend their way out of uh, out of trouble as much as they possibly can to get a, as uniform of a, uh, of a product as you can. But the thing a lot of uh, folks don't understand when we're talking about whiskey distillation, you have to plan your maturation out 10, 20 years in advance, especially for the larger producers. And no matter how hard you try, you're going to get it wrong. And so what that means is um, the, the target age point for these whiskeys is going to change over time. So in other words, if you make too much whiskey and you've got a surplus of whiskey and you're normally releasing at age four years, what do you do with the the whiskey that doesn't sell that gets into the six-year-old and eight-year-old and 10-year-old? You're just going to blend that back in. So when we're talking about whiskey, it changes from decade to decade, no matter how large the plant is or no matter how uh, how how hard you work to make it as consistent as possible it's it's an it's an impossibility you're going to wind up having whiskey of different ages going into your final blend and it's one of the wonderful things i think about whiskey it's uh, i like to explain it it's a, it's a verb not a noun <laughs> talk about the subject of heirloom grains and how that fits into what you're doing Heirloom grains is is something that a lot of distillers have started looking into. 
um, really over the last five years intensively. We have our own heir- heirloom grain program here. Uh, so I'm sure you're, you're, the listeners know that we've been basically kind of breeding the flavor out of our grains for the last hundred years, particularly when we're talking about beverage alcohol. We've been chasing after yield, which means chasing after starch. The heirloom grain that we use in particular, we use a variety of rye called a bruisey rye. And when I'm looking at the older varieties of grain, what I look for is low starch. Uh, and they're, they're the reason for that, obviously, uh, is if it doesn't, if it has lower starch, you know, modern rye is dry basis or you, you get north of 80%. The bruisey rye that we had grown for us for the last six years, just a few miles up the road. Uh, it says 62% starch. And whenever you see that big of a difference, the question becomes, okay, well, what does it have more of? Uh, one of the things it has elevated amounts of uh, grown here in Colorado, and of course, where you grow it is going to affect all of these things and how you grow it. It has elevated amounts of ferulic acid. Uh, of course, I made hefeweizen for, for over a decade and, and the, you know getting that four vinyl guayacol note that you're looking forward to make a hefeweizen and that also translates over to rye whiskey production. Uh, so being able to control that, uh, we don't use any kind of a mashing uh, regime to try and extract more ferulic acid. What we try and do is f- uh, find a variety of, of rye that had a little bit more in it so that we could get that spicy note to, to kind of come through. Another compound that it has an awful lot of is linalool. A linalool to me, usually I think uh, lavender floral notes. Uh, the rye whiskey that we make is actually 80% rye and 20% malted barley. And it just smells like I put lavender in the condenser. It, it has such a, a profound effect using the Abruzzi rye versus uh, a modern strain. It really makes a big difference. But the biggest thing, you know, the, as brewers know, when you're making a recipe, you're not adding pounds of grain when you're trying to mash to hit your target gravity. You're looking at how many pounds of starch that you're adding. So if you're looking at a recipe where you're using something with 62% starch as opposed to 80% starch with a modern rye, I have to add about 30% more of the Abruzzi rye versus a modern strain to hit my target gravity, which is 12 Play-Doh. So, of course, what does that mean? If I'm adding 30% more of the rye, that means 30% more of the linalool, 30% more of that ferulic acid, 30% more of what makes that rye flavor really stand out in the whiskey. I'm making a bigger whiskey by selecting that heirloom variety of grain. So I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned in, in, you know, talking to people over the years, they just think that heirloom grains are old timey and cool, (laughs) but they, they haven't thought about the relationship as to that, that starch amount, the amount of starch that you have, assuming that you do not add, um, enzymes to it. If you add enzymes to it, now you're starting to break down some of those other compounds and, you know, beta-glucans can turn into fermentable sugars. And when you're breaking down some more of those compounds, you kind of lose a little bit of that. You're, you're increasing your yield, but you're making it so that your that alcohol isn't as flavored with the, that rye note. And that's why, of course, we mash naturally. It, it adds more flavor into our finished whiskey. <laughs> That was Todd Leopold here on the Master Brewers podcast. When I asked Todd what his favorite Master Brewers technical quarterly paper was, he replied that Joe Hertrick's 2013 article is required reading in his Malthouse and Distillery. 
If you want to take your knowledge to the next level, check the show notes for a direct link to Joe's article. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries, and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career, and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Yeah.